Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, Tales in a Time of Lockdown. As their mother was leaving, she told her children not to open the door under any circumstances. If anyone knocks, don't answer it, she told them. But the boy and his sister didn't pay any attention to their mother's warning. They thought she was being too careful. They figured they could take care of themselves in any situation. About an hour after the parents left, the kids heard a knock-knock-knock on the front door. They decided to ignore it, but again, they heard knock-knock-knock. It happened again and again, and it grew louder each time. Eventually, the girl couldn't stand it anymore, and she told her brother she was going to answer the door. When the boy reminded her of their mother's warning, the girl just wouldn't listen. Again, they heard the knock, knock, knock on the door. Finally, the sister went downstairs. Her brother lay on the sofa watching TV. He heard his sister's footsteps walking down the stairs. He heard her asking loudly, Who is it? He heard her open the lock on the front door. Then he heard only silence. He lay there for a while, listening for any noise, but heard nothing. Eventually he started getting scared. His sister still hadn't returned. He was afraid to call out to her, so he snuck out the back door and made his way to the neighbor's house. When he was let into the house, His neighbor was watching the local news on TV. The news anchor on TV was talking about a murder. Then they showed a reporter live at the scene of the crime. The neighbor said to the boy, Hey, that looks like your house. The boy was shaking with fear. That is my house, he said. And that's my front door. And that was Arts Express breaking news, sort of. Knock Knock, narrated by Jonathan Jones and written by Anonymous. And coming up next on Arts Express, British actor and comedian Eddie Izzard is into something rather new and different these days. He's penned and stars in a spy thriller based on actual history and his own personal life, as having played out in the town he grew up in. The film is Six Minutes to Midnight, revisiting the case of a Nazi Germany finishing school for girls located on the British coast just prior to World War II. What that school was doing there in the first place, which would have been a chilling noir in its own right, is the reality of just how cozy the country was with Hitler just prior to the war, including British royalty, and so much so that Hitler contemplated the two countries conquering Europe together. And in fact, quite a bit of buried history as to how pro-Nazi much of Europe was back then before being attacked, and not quite the them-versus-us narrative in the history books. And on the show to talk about all that frankly and more is Eddie Izzard. First, some of his performance in a likewise politically candid, satirical stand-up global tour, Dress to Kill. All of Europe, you must do this. Well, we're not gonna. Um, We're gonna have a sandwich. And Germany and Japan, they they do seem to have a natural instinct uh, in in a very generalized way for organization and and being military. But, you know, there's a very strong Green Party there now. There's kids with beards. It's getting okay. And uh, 
I just think that J Japan and Germany should be the, 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 the peacekeepers of the world. They should be parachuted in whenever something breaks out. Parachute Germans and Japanese in. We'll go, look, we've done this before. We've done the killing. Hello. Take it from us. Just chill, chill out. All right? <laughs> and that they organize peace really efficiently, really quickly. All right. Peace, peace, peace. Peace is organized. It'd be brilliant if they could do it. That's their destiny, man. Yeah. And Italy invented fascism in 1922. Mussolini said, right, we're all fascists, but most Italian people are always on scooters going, ciao. <laughs> and they're into football and life, and they're not fascists, you know. They said, we're all fascists. Uh, all right, ciao. <laughs> no helmet on. All those 50s films like Roman Holiday. It's just like that. Everyone's just cool and hangs out. So after the Second World War, the whole you know, world was saying, come on, Europe, give these countries back. Come on, you know, we've had a bloody war, let's give them back. Britain, what? <laughs> What's that behind your back? Oh, it's India and a number of other countries. <laughs> give them back. Oh, all right, there's that one, there's that one, there's that one. Falkland Islands. Oh, we need the Falkland Islands for strategic sheep purposes. Yeah. And then it was a case of no empire, no longer. But in, in America it was different. The Founding Fathers landed in 16... <laughs> they set off from Plymouth and landed in Plymouth. How lucky is that? <laughs> this is Plymouth. We've just come from Plymouth. We've gone round the circle. Lads, back on the bus. They finally got there and said, ah, this is where our God has brought us to. We can, we can practice our religion here. We can raise a family. There's nobody here. Excuse me. There's nobody here. Yes, a land empty of human existence. Who are these guys? What's all this, please? No, we don't want any of your food. Thank you very much. Meanwhile, that winter, excuse me, do you have any food? I love all this. Lovely idea. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry, we're a bit brusque when we first arrived. We didn't realize you owned the entire country. <laughs> but you have no system of ownership. Hmm, interesting. Um, maybe that can come in useful later. Food, thank you very much, very nice. Yes, there's more of us coming, but we all keep our promises. <laughs> so the American government lied to the Native Americans for many, many years. And then President Clinton lied about a relationship, and everyone was surprised. A little naive, I feel. We, we, when we were kids, we lied our heads off. I didn't do it. I was, I, wasn't, I was dead at the time. I was on the moon with Steve. And your dad's going, I haven't even accused you of anything yet. Oh, all right. What, what, what's the question? I, I, what, what? Did you brush your teeth? No. Yes. Which, what's correct? And it what? Yeah. I was dead at the time. Then when you're more mature, you do start telling the truth in odd situations. I'm sorry, I've broken a glass. I've broken this. Is that an expense? I, I'll, I've broken it. I'll pay for that. I'm sorry. And you do that so that people in the room might go, what a strong personality that person has. I like to have sex with people with strong personalities. <laughs> and I broke other things. I've smashed that and, and that's gone. And... Eddie Izzard phoning in from the UK to talk about Six Minutes to Midnight, what motivated him to write and star in this historically fact-based spy thriller starring himself, Judi Dench and Jim Broadbent, and his character's mix of James Bond and a little Chaplin. And back then, quote, some English people were into that, some British people were positive on the Nazis. First, some scenes from Six Minutes to Midnight, then Eddie Izzard. Is this your first visit to Bexhill? Yes, it is. You come recommended by an agency. Not of different schools, I see. Thank you. That wasn't a compliment. There's been an alliance between England and Germany here yeah, for many years. What sort of Englishman would accept a post? Teaching Herr Hitler's League of German Girls. Der Führer würde sagen, dass er nicht Manns Der Führer würde was sagen? Mein Vater ist Deutsch. 
I do not like surprises. They are the daughters of the Nazi High Command. As soon as there's movement, we'll take the school. England can be an unforgiving place if you happen to be German. It can often be hard to tell who someone really is, who is good and who is bad. I have a list of Nazi conspirators, English traitors. This country is at war with Germany. Germany can't afford the girls to be captured. Can you assure me you haven't been compromised? to stop this. My girls are not the enemy. They're German, aren't they? Hi, Prairie. Amazing first name you. Hi, how are you? I'm very good, thanks. Okay, and welcome to our show from over there in the UK. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Now, what inspired you and why was it important to you to be part of Making Six Minutes to Midnight about the real-life German girls' school in Britain just prior to World War II and as both co-writer and star? Well, um... As you know, probably A-listers who are actors, men or women, they, they will develop projects and, and give themselves the big lead role. And so I, I am no exception to this. I may not be an A-plus lister, but I'm someone who wants to develop roles and give myself a good role. So I, I grew up in this uh, town. Half my life I grew up in, in a place called Bexon, so seaside town, south of England. If people know anything of England, Brighton, they might have heard of Hastings, Battle of Hastings, that kind of area, south of England. And uh, I was told, I, uh, because I'm a patron of the museum there, the museum um, uh, curator, he said, look, the, one of the schools that used to be here before the war had a blazer badge. for the. It was a girls' school with a blazer badge, which has the British flag. It had the British flag on it and the Nazi flag. And he showed me a, a copy of that. And I thought, wow, that is, that is so unusual. Really, the British flag and the Nazi flag right next to each other on one badge. That's odd. There must be a film in that, I thought to myself. And so 10 years later, the film is coming out. And um, that's, it just seemed like the idea, an interesting idea. Eve of World War II, um, Himmler's goddaughter was at this school. Von, uh, von Ribbentrop, who, who was the foreign secretary to, to Britain, his, his uh, daughter was at the school. So they were all linked to, to the Nazi high command. They were learning English, getting to know British people. There was an idea that the English particularly, Hitler was thinking in his twisted thinking that the English and the Germans would go together and, and you know, do this dominating of the world. So, and some English people were into that. Some British people were positive on the Nazis. So they were there as ambassadors in a way. And so that was the foundations. And we thought, let's build, I thought, let's build a thriller on that. And working with my co-writers, Kellen Jones, who's in the film, and Andy Goddard, who's the director, we built this film, Six Minutes to Midnight. And what do you feel this real-life story from the past says about the present and to contemporary audiences? Well, it, the strap line could well be for our film a lesson from history because it talks of the time, the 1930s, when um, certain people were just lying in politics. They were using lies as a tool of politics to get ahead, to get elected, to get move on. We're just going to make this up and blame people and using blamed uh, ideas, uh, strategy, um, extreme right-wing politics and white supremacy. And you would have thought, well, in 1945, that all stopped and went away. But, well, 90 years later, we seem to be back there. And it's unusual that what's going on now in America, in Britain, around the world, um, some people are lying again, overt lying, the big lie. This is what Hitler said. If you lie big enough, he said this to his the other Nazi members of the high command, if you lie big enough, people will believe it more than the small lies. And then, you know, someone like Donald Trump came along and said, oh, I won an election, which he patently lost. And, and a number of people have gone along with it. So it is a curious thing that human beings repeat themselves. If, you do, if we don't learn from our history, we are doomed to repeat it. And that underlies the story, but it's no, no way overt. This is a thriller, Hitchcockian, 39 Steps. 
Judy Dench plays the woman running the school, who's very Nazi sympathetic. Jim Broadbent, another Oscar winner, playing Charlie, who drives the bus based on my 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 grandfather, Charlie Izzard, who drove drove the bus in Bexhill. So uh, I think people will enjoy it. And what actually happened to these students after the film ends? Well, in reality, they went back to Germany and um, some of them made it through the war, some of them didn't. It gets the, the, the lines of communication get quite hazy at that point. But we know they were there from 32 to 39, so it's seven years. We know they were initially making friends. They were just another German school. And then the Nazis came in and it got more and more strident in its uh, Nazi leanings. And um, so the local townspeople were getting more and more kind of offhand with them. But exactly what happened to each and every girl, we, we don't know. History must know, but it'll take a heavy-duty researcher to find that out. And on another note, besides portraying real history, what have been the inspirations and challenges for you of portraying real public figures on screen? Socrates in The Gods Are Laughing, Charlie Chaplin in The Cat's Meow, Queen Elizabeth on The Simpsons, and on stage as Lenny Bruce in Lenny. Well, I'd take Lenny Bruce and Chaplin as the, as the big ones because some of the others are <laughs> smaller and zip through. But Chaplin, very intriguing. I, I, I was never really into Chaplin's comedies. And I was a street performer. And I was going in by bus to, to street perform at Covent Garden uh, on the streets there for four years. And I used to go past a house where he grew up in. And I thought, I really should look into Chaplin's past. Why did everyone laugh at him in, in the old days? And I don't seem to find it funny. And I found that he really was funny. So I'd, I'd already researched him before I got to play him. So it was kind of wonderful to play him. But I couldn't be as athletic as he was. But I, I, I tried to, to clash together with him and, and bring him this wit uh, and this intrigue. And the story we told could well be a true story about Thomas Ince and how Thomas Ince died, um, a, uh, a mystery that's got lost in time. Um, so it's an intriguing thing. We know that uh, him and Marion Davis were on the boat. And so that's, that was intriguing to play that one. And um, what was the other one that I played uh, that I just said? I, oh, we're going to play. oh, Lenny Bruce, yes. Uh, <laughs> Harry Hale of Lenny, who, who ended up dying for freedom of speech, you know, freedom of, I mean, yeah. addiction, but he fought and he fought and he fought through the American courts, and in the end, freedom of speech, uh, he won freedom of speech. So um, wonderful to play him, but both of them, uh, particularly Lenny, very tricky to play. Uh, I, I got ill playing Lenny Bruce, so playing him, yeah. Now, you seem to take on quite a James Bond type of role in the film, and you do a lot of running around. How physically exhausting for you was that? And what went into your thinking about creating this espionage character, Miller? Well, what I realized about Thomas Miller is he's half German, half English. And I've seen a number of, you know, maybe nearly all the World War II movies. And, and someone who's half English, half German, I, I don't know if there's a character out there like that. Because, of course, the British don't trust him because he's half German. Germans don't trust him because he's half British. The physical physicality of him that that just has to happen. I'm I am a very physical person who wanted to be in special forces when I was a kid, and you know I've run now 130 marathons for charity, so people do know that I can run. So it wasn't that surprising, I think, for people to see me zipping in front of the camera. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a role that I wanted to play, and it just turned into this person. As soon as you are the uh, you know, the police think that you've done something that you haven't done. You've got to escape. You've got to get away. And um, like Robert Donat way back in the 39 Steps, like Harrison Ford in The Fugitive. Um, yeah, that's you, that's part of the part of the gig. So I was happy to play it. And you once said, drama is a complete meal. Vitamins, proteins, carbohydrates. Comedy is more like Coke. Please elaborate. Well, I, I probably, in that analogy, I probably think comedy is more like a dessert. If you take the main meal thing, because there are flavors in a main meal and it takes you, it, it take, it, it's a larger meal and it takes you, and it's more satisfying, I feel. Where dessert, you think about dessert, it's very sugary. It's always sugar-based. It's not salt-based. It's sugar-based. And it has this kind of, um, I say cokey, like, but it's like, it's like a, it's a zingy kind of thing that goes on. And comedy can do this thing. It hits quite high and it can be with you and then you laugh and then you sort of move on. And it doesn't necessarily resonate after the show. Whereas a, a, a good film, a main meal, 
will have laughter and could have tears and drama, tension. It can have a whole range of emotions. And you just won't have tension in a comedy show. You won't have tears in a comedy show. Um, unlikely to, unless, unless the comedy is really awful. So that's why I love, my first love is drama. I wanted to be in, an actor before I wanted to be a, a comedian. And so I, I have these two careers that I run parallel, which is unusual. Normally you choose one or the other and I'm uh, running both. And that's uh, not, yeah, that's, that's a little bit unusual, but, but I love doing them both. And what would you say is most misunderstood about you, if anything? Uh, most misunderstood, uh, um, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't. Uh, I I think people understand me quite well. They seem to know because there's an interesting thing. I have been quite on it. If you if you stand up, my other day job as I was mentioning, you have to talk about something. So you tend to talk about everything, everything you've ever done, thought of, or whatever. So most stuff in life is is that I've done is known about, um, uh, as opposed to people can talk to me and go, oh, we didn't know this about you, that about you. People don't know that I can fly. I'll tell you that. Yes, I, I have a pilot's license. So that's not misunderstood. They don't know that about me because I was basically scared of flying. So I taught, I, I got took lessons and learned to fly. Okay. Thanks so much for calling into our show. Thank you very much indeed. Great to talk to you. Bye. Bye. And six minutes to midnight is out now in theaters, and now on Arts Express. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. With TV shows like Henry Louis Gates' Finding Your Roots and some aggressive advertising of DNA testing by companies like Ancestry.com, millions have spit into a tube to find the names of their particular ancestors and relatives, and more generally to confirm their ethnic heritage. But these appealing tests have some far-reaching consequences that most of us have not even considered. Award-winning Washington Post reporter Libby Copeland has written about the unforeseen consequences of these genetic tests in a beautifully structured and comprehensive book called The Lost Family, How DNA is Upending Who You Are. Hi, Libby. Hi, Jack. Thanks so much for having me. Libby, I really enjoyed the book. And you structure that book like strands of DNA with many threads interweaving, and there's a core mystery providing the spine of the book. I myself confess to being a genealogy nerd. What is it about genealogy that makes us so obsessive? Part of it is a lot of Americans in this moment looking up and saying, wow, you know, my ancestors emigrated to the United States and then they assimilated a great deal. And I actually don't know who I am. I actually don't even know where my grandfather was from. Dovetailing with that is this enormous industry devoted to scanning indexing, digitizing mm -hmm. paper records from all over the world. And alongside of that, DNA testing, which mm -hmm. to this day, you know, they've the, the four major companies that offer this product have sold 37 million DNA test kits, and most of them are to Americans. So we have become kind of a nation of genealogical seekers. Genealogists are one of my favorite groups of people to write about because I love writing about people who go into rabbit holes because I'm a person <laughs> who goes into rabbit holes, right? Yep, so yep. I love obsessives and genealogists are the are the best kind of obsessive. <laughs> they, they wake up in the middle of the night with a question and they go online and they start trying to answer it and they will not stop. I read that in your book and I had to laugh while I was reading because that was me. You know, you start at seven o'clock in the evening and then all of a sudden it's three in the morning and you don't know how that happened. When did the first consumer DNA test start becoming available? So exactly 21 years ago in the spring of 2000, a company down in Houston, Texas called Family Tree DNA sent out its first DNA test kits for researching your family and understanding your ancestry. But within the last 10, 11 years, something called autosomal DNA testing came on the scene. Uh -huh. 
And what autosomal DNA testing can do, and that's the, the main kind of DNA testing that's available, and, mm-hmm. um, is it can give you two pieces of information. It tells you your genetic ancestry, which is where the various people in your family came from. And the other thing that it's giving you is who among those who have tested with the same company matches you as as a genetic relative. And they can see that because they can detect overlapping genetic segments. Um, And so, you know, sometimes one of the interesting things that I was writing about in the book is like when we turn up unexpected relatives and what that means for our understanding of ourselves and our families. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's go back a little bit. Let's say I send my $99 to Ancestry.com or one of those other companies for a DNA test. What happens next? So you send your money and you wait for a box to come in the mail. And in that box is a vial. And you're either spitting into that vial or you're taking something that looks like a very long Q-tip and you're swabbing your inside of your cheeks and then you're dropping that Q-tip into the vial. So one way or another, you're getting your cells to them, and they are basically opening up those cells and extracting the DNA, and they're examining certain points along the DNA because they're not analyzing all of it. That would be very expensive. And then maybe about, say, four weeks later, you get an email, and it says, Jack, your results are ready, and Uh you log on, and then you are able to kind of suddenly access this absolutely massive universe of information that is contained inside of your cells. Is it true that 99.5% of all of our DNA is the same among all humans? It's really only a half a percent that accounts for the variation in eye color and skin color and height and all the rest? Yeah. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because, you know, it's important for us to know how alike we are genealogy is a hobby, but it's not only a hobby. And sometimes a person may find out more than they bargained for. What's a non-paternity event or an NPE? So a non-paternity event is a term that used to be completely obscure. It used to be limited to the world of genealogy and genetic genealogy. And all it meant was that you were researching back in your line and you found something where, you know, something didn't seem to line up. Oh, maybe it was this child taking his stepfather's last name, but he actually, you know, he wasn't genetically related to the man he considered his father, right? I mean, and that could be, you know, four or five generations back. Mm -hmm. With the explosion of DNA testing, the concept of a non-paternity event has become an extremely immediate and emotionally kind of profound experience that many, many, many Americans have experienced where they are spitting into a tube, they're getting their results, and lo and behold, none of their paternal relatives are showing up in the database. Instead, they have a completely different person who is identified as their, say, half-sister. And when they start to dig, they realize that they're one of several possible explanations for this. And one of those explanations may be that they are not genetically related to the man they consider dad. And that is probably the most common kind of DNA surprise, discovering that you are not related to the man you consider your father, genetically speaking, that which is a NPE or non-paternity event, sometimes it's called not parent expected. That is something that is affecting many, many Americans right now. Some of the explanations for that could be an adoption or or even a sperm donor, right? Absolutely. You know, there are a lot of ways that we human beings can come into the world that 50, 60 years ago were much more stigmatized than they are now. And there were many cases when children were not told that they were donor conceived or adopted. The flip side of this is that people who grow up knowing that can use DNA testing to find their genetic kin right? Exactly, exactly. There there are happy endings too. So all of a sudden, let's say a tester finds out that she or he has a whole new set of biological half-siblings and cousins. What, What are the implications of that? So the implications are manifold. Practically, most people who discover that they have close genetic kin they didn't know about have a heck of a lot of questions, right? Yeah, And sure. they kind of try to follow those questions along two tracks. The first track is they often want to go to their parents and say, hey, hey, <laughs> yeah. we got you've got some explaining to do, right? Let's yeah, have a conversation. Yeah. What's going yeah. on here, right? 
or they may want to protect, you know, they may want to have a conversation with mom and mm. protect dad, right? Depending. Oh, yeah. Or mm -hmm. the parents may no longer be alive and they're left with questions, which is actually quite painful for many people. The other thing they're also wanting to investigate is their biological kin, right? And that searching, that process of searching can be merely looking someone up online and lo and behold the internet era is you know makes it very easy to discover a whole lot right. of things about um you know all the social media clues that your genetic father has left about his politics online are now yours for the taking right um and then sometimes they want to reach out and those reach outs to genetic kin who may or may not know that that the person who is reaching out even exists those are very fraught mm. and those are mm -hmm. really the heart of what i wanted to explore in the book the, the emotional impacts are really profound. They're often experienced as a trauma to discover that your own beginnings aren't what you thought. Mm. And then there's existential questions about like, who am I really? All of that stuff is playing out in that moment when you're looking at your computer screen and your results aren't what you thought. And it's not only the tester who has to deal with the results, but the other side also. As you said, they may not even have known there was a, a paternity event happening. Not only might they not have known, but they may not have tested their DNA. And this is one of the things that I, I think is really important to understand, that when you take a DNA test, you are effectively making a decision for your close family and not so close mm. family, right? Mm. So your decision to test has implications potentially for second and third cousins, people whose names you might not even know, people who are essentially strangers to you. Um, and that is because you share overlapping genetic segments with them. And so if somebody is, for instance, related to a second cousin of yours and trying to identify that second cousin, right? Let's say it's an adult child looking for her genetic father and your second cousin is that genetic father, but he's never actually even tested. She can potentially test, get matched to you. And by doing some genealogical research and maybe mm. looking at other cousins, figure out the identity or the likely, likely identity of her genetic dad from the match to you, even though her dad is not in the system. Yeah, that's, that's really the amazing thing about the synergy of the DNA testing with the genealogical records, which these companies all own more and more. And I want to talk about that more and get into that more a little bit later. But I, I'm still kind of, you know, amazed by how your whole life can be upended. I, yeah. I keep thinking of that Jack Nicholson movie where he says, you know, the truth, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> and, and there's a real irony because after Nicholson became famous, he discovered that the woman he thought was his sister was really his mother. And the woman he thought his mother was his grandmother. Yeah. Um, so how does one maintain their balance when one's whole life script seems to be changed? Yeah, I you know, I interviewed a woman in a similar situation. Her her grandparents were acting as her parents, but they were genetically her her grandparents. Wow. Um and the close relative that she thought of as um as an aunt was in fact her mother. And you know, it's incredibly disorienting and sometimes at least temporarily debilitating. Because what I have found is that is that when you're understanding of your own beginnings change, it changes the whole rest of your personal narrative. So stories that people told me were, for instance, going back and re-editing the memories of a lifetime. This memory that that I recall from when I was six years old, where my mother said something that at the time I didn't even realize I thought was weird, but it's hung with me all these years. Now that stray remark makes sense, you know, mm -hmm. or um, or you know, that look that I got. When I was 12 years old, my grandmother gave me a look, you know, during a conversation. What did that mean? Was that part of this? Did she know? And then the person feels sort of outside often of a secret and the secret is themselves. Mm -hmm. So there's a wow. great sense of violation and often yeah. a sense of a breach of trust between, mm -hmm. you know, the person who's discovering this and their parents, right? That's a, that's a relationship built on trust. And if all of a sudden you realize they've been keeping from you something that's so central to your identity, people can be very angry. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure often it's done with good intentions, but it has such wide consequences. Do testing companies warn customers of the possible consequences? They give you an advisory um, when you're testing, and that advisory can sometimes be more or less emphatic. For instance, they may give it to you more than once. But what I found was that generally people don't 
assume that that advisory will apply to them. Yeah, it's always the other person. Well, interwoven like a DNA strand with all this fascinating material uh, is the story of researcher Alice Collins' playbook. And it's almost serendipitous that her name is Alice, because like Alice in Wonderland, she fell down a rabbit hole and ended up in Wonderland. I don't want you to give any spoilers unless you want to, but can you tell us a bit about her journey? What was the initial anomaly that made Alice sit up and take notice? Yeah, Alice is a wonderful character. She's in her 70s, and she uh, took a DNA test as kind of an adjunct to the work she was doing as genealogist. She took this test all the way back in 2012. And the test that she took was through um, the company that's now the biggest company on the scene in terms of database size, which is Ancestry. But at the time, they were just debuting their test. And in fact, it was still in beta testing. So she didn't even know how how reliable the results were that she was going to get. She is fully expecting that this is going to help her with her Irish research because Alice is almost entirely Irish-American. And when she gets her genetic ancestry report back from the company, she's kind of flummoxed because instead of telling her, as she fully knows, that she is almost entirely Irish, it is telling her that she is half Ashkenazi Jewish. So she at first assumes that ancestry is screwed up, right? And and a lot of people make that assumption and she writes them like a nasty note and she says, you yeah. guys don't know what you're doing, right? <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. but at the same time, Alice is extremely methodical and thoughtful and curious and she decides she wants to dig a little deeper and she does. And so she takes another test at 23andMe, which is another big company, And she finds that ancestry has not screwed up. You know, it is her family that has somehow gotten its history quite wrong. And so what she does is she begins to investigate with ferocity what the truth is. And it takes her two and a half years of full-time work. And it's an incredible, almost like existential detective mystery that she embarks on. Of course, people take these tests to find particular ancestors, but they also take them to discover their ethnic heritage. How is that even possible with DNA? What is it even that they're actually testing? When I get my chart back that says I'm 54% Middle Eastern and 27% Southern Italian, what does that even mean? There was not even a country called Italy until the mid-1800s. So should I be eating pita and pizza? What what does that mean? Um, It means that a certain percentage of your DNA looks closest to the people that they have studied in their reference populations who have deep ancestry in a particular part of the world. So I'm being matched with this reference population. We're talking about geographically, we can establish that these people's ancestors, and we we know not through DNA testing, but we know through genealogical records, have resided in a particular geographical area. Exactly. Right. Okay. Yeah. Some communities are easier to pick out than others. Uh So, you know, if you're coming from a community that was geographically isolated or isolated for other reasons, they look very distinct sometimes. So like Finns, Japanese, Ashkenazi Jews, right? Right, Either by geography or by choice, they were relatively insulated. They're very kind of identifiable. Mm -hmm. But if you start getting into, is somebody French or is somebody German? It's not as if there was like a wall between those two countries. And of course, borders change. Um, You know, modern day Germany didn't exist in the way that we think about it, you know, at the 500 to 1000 years ago, which is the time period we're looking at. So some of this is taking modern day labels and putting them onto maps of Europe that would have looked completely different back in the day. Right. I'm wondering with all this DNA testing, we get into the area of genetic essentialism. What is genetic essentialism? And do you think these tests encourage the acceptance of such a, an unscientific concept? But I would not give false and we'll have to wait till next week for the answer to that and other pressing questions, including is your genetic information at risk to be rifled through by law enforcement and government? Meet you next week with part two of our interview with Libby Copeland, author of The Lost Family, How DNA is Upending Who You Are, published by Abrams Press. 
This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. up on the show I killed Dietrichson me Walter Neff insurance agent 35 years old unmarried no visible scars until a while ago that is yeah I killed him I killed him for money and for a woman it all began last May I was thinking about that dame upstairs and the way she had looked at me and I wanted to see her again, close, without that silly staircase between us. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? I can't stand it anymore. What if they do hang me? They're not going to hang you, baby. It's better than going on this way. They're not going to hang you, because you're going to do it, and I'm going to help you. Murder's never perfect. Always comes apart sooner or later. And where two people are concerned, it's usually sooner. But you don't know keys. Once he gets his teeth into something, he never lets go. He'll investigate you. He'll have you shattered. He'll watch every minute from now on. You afraid, baby? Yes, I'm afraid. But not of keys. I'm afraid of us. I'd like to move in on her right now, tonight. If it wasn't for Norton and his striped pants ideas about company policy, I'd have the cops after her so quick it'd make a head spin. Now, we know the Dietrichson dame is in it and uh, somebody else. Only I haven't got a single thing to go on, Keys. He'll show. He's got to show. Sometimes, somewhere, they've got to meet. Those were scenes from the 1944 Billy Wilder noir crime thriller, Double Indemnity, starring Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, and Edward G. Robinson, which is not the subject of this next episode of Bro on the Global Television Beat, but does have something to do with it, namely the popular pros and cons about suburban family corporate scammers. And according to our Arts Express Paris correspondent, Professor Dennis Bro, quote, an indication of the anxiety experienced by a class watching itself falling into what is becoming a regressive class system of the very rich and everyone else. Here's Dennis Bro. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, Pros and Cons, Scanning Neoliberal Scammers. The shrinking middle class and the pressures put on that class to survive an onslaught from the top directed at them and their working class compatriots is the subject of a number of contemporary series. Ozark, the most popular series on Netflix, has that class and the nuclear family around which it constructs its identity besieged by and caught in the middle of a full-on war of drug runners. Breaking Bad, one of the most popular series of all time on U.S. cable charts this downward trajectory as its anti-hero becomes increasingly more desperate and ruthless in his struggle to survive. The popularity of these series is an indication of the anxiety experienced by a class which is every day and more rapidly in the changes wrought by COVID, watching itself falling into what is becoming increasingly a regressive two-class system of the very rich and everyone else and which will not be halted, but only temporarily slowed, by Joe Biden's return to normalcy. This pressure is also felt globally and is the subject of a monstrously funny, biting social satire posing as a caper show, the Danish series Pros and Cons, season one now available on Amazon Prime and season two on the way. The show in Scandinavia is called Freihaden, the name of the lower middle class Copenhagen suburb in which its average four-member family is confined. Eric and Nina can't make the mortgage payments on a house located next to a suburban train track with a train rumbling through at all hours. Their young son, Rai, wants an iPad for school, and their teenage daughter, Esther, needs a new computer to keep up with the other kids. These are expensive items that Nina, who's a corporate assistant so bored with her job she's having an affair with her boss, and Eric, who can't seem to keep his jobs as a chef, cannot afford. Eric and Nina, though, have a talent and a passion. They are initially revealed as top-flight con artists who are involved in conning drug dealers, but have since decided that life is no longer for them and have gone straight. 
Fifteen years after retiring, though, the pressures of a squeezed middle-class life are weighing down on them. And when their con handler, Jacqueline, emerges with a plan to bilk a pharmaceutical CEO, that is a contemporary drug dealer, the couple agrees to come out of retirement. Not only is the series terrific on the flight of a dwindling middle class, it also is in very clever ways juxtaposes these pressures with the con so that the parents have to split their masquerade so that one of them is always available to take Kai to curling practice or to the doctor. The contrast between their mundane life as slightly bumbling parents and their expertise in inhabiting the world of the super-rich and playing upon their greed is as sharp as previous series like The Sopranos with its gangster family members, and more presciently, The Americans, with its Russian agents thwarting Reagan's war makers while keeping peace at home with two teenagers. Pros and cons goes each of these series one better, though, because of its sharper contrast between the deprived milieu of the home by the railroad tracks and the ultra-elaborate gleaming class structures of the corporate pharmaceutical world and the lavish homes of its directors. As social satire, the show works to enlist the sympathies of its audience in much the way as did previous crime films like Double Indemnity. In that film, we follow and even are asked to cheer on the bored but brilliant insurance salesman Walter Neff and the trapped stay-at-home bride Phyllis Dietrichson in their quest to steal from an insurance company even being intimate with them as murderers, because there is a sense that insurance is already a racket. A USA Today poll in the mid-80s revealed that a vast majority of Americans did not view cheating their insurance company as fraud, a recognition the company, which makes a profit off of gambling on when people will die, is already engaged in fraudulent activity. There's widespread belief, now backed up in the opioid lawsuits in the courts, that drug companies are in the business of creating and then addicting customers to drugs they either don't need or need desperately, in which case the company raises the price so the drugs are unaffordable. Pros and Cons was an exceedingly popular show in its native Denmark and throughout Scandinavia, reaffirming the supposition that to con a drug company is more social revenge than hardened crime. The 10-part season one then shifts gears to include in the con, through the sale of the drug company, a further con involving the Norwegian oil fund, one of the richest funds in the world, which contains the contradiction of money that comes from destroying the planet by vastly adding to the CO2 buildup being used in socially responsible ways. The season two con involves a Danish cosmetics firm whose owner admits the branding simply conceals packaging ordinary natural elements as youth restoring magical ingredients. And a French luxury firm based on LVMH, which includes Louis Vuitton, and its regal owner based on France's richest billionaire, Bernard Arnault, whose sweep in the show is about extending his own Trump-like ambitions of owning mineral-rich Greenland. Eric's Frank Zeller, is the epitome of the slick and ruthless entrepreneur, and Nina's uptight and obsequious corporate lawyer, blanches while brokering the sale of the drug company. The ease with which Nina and Eric inhabit the world of the super-rich is both humorous and sad. We read about the rich in magazines and gawk at them on television and are asked to imitate them. But like Nina and Eric, most of us then, after a few fleeting moments of immersion, must return to our crowded homes next to the train station where the plumbing is failing and the bank hovers, hoping the next mortgage payment is not made so it can reclaim the house. Pros and Cons, nominally a fictional series, is ripped from the emotional fabric of life under neoliberal capitalism, where opportunities shrink for the many who must go to elaborate lengths to even get the scraps from the wealth that now accrues only to the few. Pros and Cons is a 10-part first season that has an unusual but now more popular structure that is quite effective. At the midpoint of the series, the end of five episodes, the con seems to have worked and the series might be over. Instead, new difficulties arise, forcing the gang, now also including Nina and Nick's daughter Esther, in another nod to the Americans, to raise the stakes and escalate the con. At first, the audience is left reeling, not knowing where the series is going, but then quickly new problems arise, and the impetus for the second half of the season drives the show forward. Two other series, which use this season-structuring approach, are the Icelandic series The Valhalla Murders and American TV's Big Sky. The Valhalla Murders is the most effective of all three in that the first half of the series seems to hinge on the discovery and thwarting of a serial killer, fairly standard stuff for a contemporary crime film. The killer seems to be brought to justice, but slowly the two detectives learn that the web of intrigue around the sexual crimes at a boarding house extend upward and engulf the upper echelons of the criminal justice system. 
The midpoint pause in this case is used to shift gears toward far more critical content, which we then realize in retrospect is crucial and intrinsic to any understanding of the original crime. Big Sky, on the other hand, after a stunning reversal in episode one, which alters the masculinist trajectory of the series, also seems to come to a halt at the midpoint of its initial 10-episode run, with the series then pausing as it was originally shown on network TV for a several-week holiday break. Here, though, the suspense is external. The kidnapping story, which has driven the first five episodes, seems to be resolved, and the suspense operates more on the level of the audience wondering how the series will go forward, that is, how will it fill up its next five episodes, and with the series then executing a series of shocks to satisfy this expectation. Though none of them have the element of social satire, which escalates as the series escalates in pros and cons and the Valhalla murders. The models for this kind of jarring restart halfway through the work are two Hitchcock films, Vertigo and Psycho, both of which feature the loss of major characters who have become partial or full identification figures for the audience. In both, the loss of these characters is so startling that in Vertigo, the detective Scotty at first simply wanders in a kind of psychosis until the story restarts. And in Psycho, the audience itself, now minus its lead characters, sustains a similar type of vertigo. Vertigo, the most remarkable of the two films, resolves much like pros and cons and the Valhalla murders with deeper truths to tell about the male psychosis when faced with female desire. Psycho, while telling its own truths about male violence, remains closer to the big sky model of a series of shocks that continually jar the audience, while in this case engaging it directly in its own imbrication in visual processes of bloodlust. Big Sky, on the other hand, simply offers a series of ever-escalating and exceedingly clever surprises in a way that suggests the show is afraid to more openly critique and instead chooses to flatter and enthrall its audience. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass, and signing off. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.